Health professionals at all levels are being asked to lead change throughout the organizations and communities in which they work. And while technical aspects of this work is often challenging, most managers and leaders report that cultural aspects present far greater hurdles. That's why the Institute for Healthcare Improvement's Open School has developed a nine-week virtual course for change agents, leadership, and organizing for change that is drawn from the teachings of the Harvard Kennedy School's Marshall Gans on leadership, organizing, and action. Through weekly video lectures, group coaching calls with experts in the field, and support from your peers, you'll learn to apply skills and knowledge in leadership, community organizing, population health, and the science of improvement. During the course, you'll be asked to choose a specific project for your organization or community, and then directly apply your learning each week to move your project forward. Leadership and Organizing for Change begins in September. For more information on how to enroll, or to see if you qualify for a scholarship from IHI, visit IHI.org lead. Now, here's WIHI. When we talk about alcohol or drug addiction, we often refer to a crisis. And for someone with a substance use disorder and their friends and family, the circumstances can certainly turn lives upside down. Another crisis indicator, when the numbers and dangers spike, there never seem to be enough treatment beds and resources to meet the needs. And with the current opioid epidemic, ongoing deaths from overdoses certainly remain a crisis. Still, as much as a crisis focuses our attention and drives resources to the problem, one addiction specialist says it's time to stop talking about addiction as an outlier among health conditions and start talking about it as something we can anticipate among a certain percentage of patients, something we can treat, and something we can effectively help manage, help patients manage over time using the know-how of complex care. So where's the evidence? What might this mean concretely? Well, we're going to discuss that on this edition of WIHI. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. We're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We do come to you live, as in today. And after the show, you can find this program on IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host, and producer. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. Now, we don't need an excuse to talk about alcohol or drug addiction, but current circumstances hopefully have those of you engaging with today's WIHI open to some new ideas and new treatment strategies. This is very much in the spirit of the online Better Care Playbook that you'll also hear more about on this program. All right, let's get underway. Joining us by phone from Michigan, Corey Waller is an addiction, pain, and emergency medicine specialist and now the managing partner of Complex Care Consulting. In his immediate past role was that of Senior Medical Director for Education and Policy at the National Center for Complex Health and Social Needs. A big welcome to you, Corey. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Fabulous. And here in the studio with me is Catherine Mather. She's a director at IHI and currently responsible for the successful planning and execution of a portfolio of projects that focus on improving the quality of care for people with complex health and social 
needs. And Catherine has been integral to uh, the uh, playbook I was mentioning, uh, the Better Care playbook. So we're going to start with that. You're going to provide us some foundational information and context in which Corey Waller uh, is inviting all healthcare systems today and staff to imagine ways to play a much greater and more direct role in treating addiction. And that has something to do with the mission uh, of uh, complex care and the Better Play, excuse me, Better Care Playbook. Thanks, Catherine. Great. Thanks so much, Madge. And it's great to be here today. Um, I'd like to get started by just a quick level setting about who we're talking about when we talk about people with complex needs. So these are individuals with clinically complex health status, behavioral health needs, social risk factors, whose health outcomes often don't improve and frequently even worsen despite um, extreme use of healthcare services. This population is also really heterogeneous and includes many segments, um, older adults, people with multiple chronic conditions, people with disabilities, among others. However, this diverse population is bound together by the fact that the current healthcare systems are not meeting their needs. Um, sometimes the language that's used, the language and terminology terminology to refer to this population, words like super utilizers, frequent flyers, and silver tsunami to refer to the aging adult population can really reinforce the wrong perception. So I just want to be very clear that the problem we're talking about here is not the people with complex needs. Rather, it's the, the system design. The good news is that there's a growing concern. These growing concerns around costs, poor outcomes, and piecemeal approaches to care has given way to a growing movement that is addressing these systemic issues on multiple levels. And um, as evidence of this movement, a group of six foundations, the Commonwealth Fund, the John A. Hartford Foundation, Millbank Memorial Fund, the Peterson Center on Healthcare, Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and the SCAN Foundation have formed a collaborative committed to accelerating health system transformation for people with complex needs. And the Better Care Playbook, um, which is something that IHI has developed and run since December 2016 with generous funding from this funding collaborative, aims to really capture some of the promising practices in the field of complex care and provide them to users in a format that is practical and usable with the goal of encouraging testing in their local settings. So the playbook includes um, a highly curated resource repository organized around four kind of essential questions facing stakeholders who are looking to redesign care, essentially asking why, who, what, and how. And then over the last year, we've continued to add a number of very practical tools that aim to make some of these promising practices in complex care highly accessible and actionable for practitioners around the country who want to start testing out some of these strategies um, and improve care for the people that they serve. So you can see some examples up on the, the slide here. We have some videos and blogs that feature implementers describing their work practical plays that offer step-by-step -step guidance. And most recently, um, we've created a successful a, a state map featuring successful complex care programs. Um, it's an interactive tool, and it features programs that share some common elements around person-centered care um, that have shown to improve care for people with complex needs. These elements include things like using care plans that are really individualized and are built on a foundation of a thorough medical, functional, and social assessment. Um, 
then treating these care plans as living, breathing documents um, and kind of reviewing them on a regular basis to monitor effectiveness and also to address changes in an individual's medical or functional or social psychosocial status. Um, also, another kind of key element is that the care is supported by an interprofessional care team. Well, well, the the team itself is kind of flexible and adaptable so that it can encompass a range of professions and specialties. Uh, there is kind of one key person as the point of contact. Another key point here is that the person is always a key member of the care team as well. And then finally, the, the fourth common feature of the programs featured on the state map um, is active coordination across healthcare and support services providers. And this is especially important when it comes to transitions home or to new sites of care. So I think the, the exciting takeaway here is that there are some great examples of promising and comprehensive care models and programs that have shown preliminary results in improving health outcomes while also reducing costs. I mean, we have 49 programs featured on the state map that have been replicated in 1,500 sites, which is really exciting. Um, and while this evidence is still evolving, many of these programs are also meaningfully improving people's quality of life. So this is why we believe it is so critical to continue to build both the business case and the humanitarian case for this work by testing promising care models in different settings and contexts and developing some better measures of person-centered outcomes and the effects on the total cost of care. Unfortunately, these successful programs do tend to be the exception to the rule still, and most people with complex needs are not currently interacting with these kind of programs and are instead experiencing a highly fragmented healthcare system that is not meeting their needs and also driving increased costs. In our work on the playbook, to bring us back to the topic at hand today, we're realizing that one of the most pressing ways that we're failing to meet the needs of complex populations is through addiction treatment. So we now know that addiction is a chronic neurobiological disorder. It's also a major driver of complexity, both on its own and also as an amplifier to other chronic conditions, disabilities, and social needs. And I'm sure Dr. Waller will go into this more, but while there's substantial evidence of what works to treat addiction, it's not standardized across either the acute or the ambulatory care settings. So... In our perspective, this is a, a segment of complex care that is not only ripe for improvement in and of itself, but we also believe that figuring out how to improve care for people with addiction has a huge potential to impact other segments as well. So as a result, in recent months, we've been working to tease out the topic of addiction from under the umbrella term of behavioral health on the playbook. Um, we're doing this by building out some of the content that we have available and including some very specific pra and practical resources around addiction treatment and developing a service line for treating people with substance use disorder. So um, I'll leave you with this example that's up on the screen right now. This is one of our most recent practical plays we worked on with Dr. Waller, really focused on um, treating addiction in the hospital setting. So um, with that, I'll hand it back to you, Madge. All right. <clears throat> Thank you, Catherine. I really appreciate that context, and we hope uh, you all, um, you know, make yourselves uh, familiar uh, with the playbook uh, when you have an opportunity and if you've used it already and feel like chatting in uh, what you found that has been helpful. Curious if anybody has tapped into any of the work on addiction. And just before I go to Corey, <clears throat> I want to mention 
that there's a couple in addition to this uh, play and, and wonderful kind of infographic. Uh, there are a couple of pieces by um, Corey, Dr. Waller. Uh, I, I guess I'll be informal and, and refer to you as Corey. You can set me straight if you want. And he's got a, a couple of really important essays uh, on the uh, website, No More Excuses. It's time to treat opioid addiction. Um, he's going to sort of help unpack something he's also written about, screen, treat, and refer patients with substance use disorder in the hospital setting, and why don't hospitals treat addiction like heart attacks, which uh, also landed uh, actually as an op-ed uh, in, um, I think that's USA Today, where that uh, was published, which um, I'm curious, of course, uh, from all of you, and maybe Corey can also let us know what kind of feedback he's getting uh, as he's trying to really, uh, in the best sense, provoke uh, some space uh, for this topic within uh, the whole area of complex care. So, Corey, uh, <clears throat> given the extent to which addiction, as Catherine was saying, is often a factor for patients with complex health and social conditions, why hasn't it sat more comfortably in this complex care realm? And then you can tell us uh, a little more about what you're trying to do. But let's start a little bit with just set the scene for us uh, about what it is you're trying uh, uh, to carve out here uh, in, in what kind of environment. Thanks. Yeah, no, thank you, Madge. I appreciate that uh, introduction. And I think the best way to think about this is there was an actual decision made by a pretty small group of people back in the 1960s and early 70s to separate addiction treatment from standard medical health care delivery. And the, when they did that, it was because we didn't really have the science data or math to understand that addiction is a primary chronic neurobiological disorder that has treatments and that it's predictable and we can understand it. But that had long-standing ramifications because what it did is it not only set it up to where it was separate from all uh, payment and business operations, but it happened by design in anonymity. So, so people would go to a 12-step, you know, uh, group, and it was anonymous. And there was some comfort in that, but also that completely disconnected the capability for us to track outcomes, utilization, performance, and who was doing what and what was working and what wasn't. And it led us to this point that by that being isolated, it created a system that was basically institutionally stigmatized toward the treatment of addiction as a chronic neurobiological disorder instead of just a, a moral failing. And, and we've been undoing that over the last, I would say, 15 years with a lot of work in the neuroscience realm trying to understand all of the aspects of what's going on in the brain that's causing behavior that helps us to understand how do we stabilize the, the brain both structurally and chemically to then decrease those behaviors so that a patient doesn't meet criteria for addiction. And addiction is not based on a lab test. It's not based on an x-ray. It's not, you know, based on an EKG. So it's a little bit more nebulous and it takes a little more subtle understanding because we define addiction really based on a set of behaviors. And 
this is where I think a lot of people have had issues with understanding the treatment pathway for addiction because they may see something like a methadone or a buprenorphine for opioid use disorder as replacing one thing for another. And in actuality, what it's doing is alleviating all of those behaviors associated with the, the drug that they were using. And thus, the patient is considered to be in remission from the disease of addiction. And, and now that we have these designations, we have levels of care that we know we can understand, we have large Cochrane-level databases of information that tell us what to do, when to do it, and for how long, we should be building this back into the system where it probably should have been from the get-go. But it's been so separate and very specifically separate from the monetary standpoint that we're having to not only add a new line of service to healthcare, but we're having to take something that was done for free in a self-help modality and start to pay for it. And so it's adding an entirely new driver of cost to healthcare. But I, I think the opportunity for healthcare systems and um, providers is that it's it's actually a new revenue source that will ultimately stabilize patients far past just addiction and and stabilize these other things that we thought were really difficult, complex issues like diabetes and hypertension and COPD. But the drivers of this uh, uh, worsening high-cost subset of patients with, uh, with these diseases is not about getting one more training from a nutritionist about diabetes. Um, it's not even about getting a ride to the office. And many times it's treating what I've kind of labeled as the sentinel syndromes, one of which is addiction and the others, behavioral health, chronic pain, and cognitive disorders. I mean, these are things that if uh, these are the drivers that take a patient with diabetes, COPD, and CHF and make them that 5% that costs 50%. And each one of these are pretty significant gaps in the healthcare system. And this is the, the, the biggest issue that I'm trying to deal with now, which is to build out an ecosystem of treatment for each of these sentinel syndromes, starting with addiction. And in order to do that, I, in, let's drill down specifically on addiction a little bit. And you can go to the next slide. If we, uh, if we look at this picture, this is uh, um, looking backwards uh, in an area of New York City. And if we look at this, imagine this city as being cardiology, right? So this, this represents cardiology. And when we have this, what we see is you walk outside of the door of your building, whichever one it is there, and you can turn to your left and you have um, a cardiologist who specializes in right heart failure on look to the right. And it's somebody who specializes in left heart failure. Or you can go across the street and get a transplant. Or you can go down the, uh, the street a little farther and get a left ventricular assist device or a heart cath or any number of things really from, from soup to nuts. So that entire package, that ecosystem of cardiological care for a patient with a heart condition exists. And it exists in a number of different arenas within uh, uh, the United States uh, to the point of which if you show up to a you know, a critical access hospital in the middle of rural America, and you have chest pain, and I'm trained as an emergency medicine physician, and I still clinically work in the emergency department. And when I'm in there, if I work at a small hospital, if a patient comes in and they're having what we call an ST elevation MI, you know, the big one, then 
even if I'm in this middle of nowhere hospital, we have a protocol that will put them on a helicopter and fly them to the nearest referral center to get treatment for that disease because we know we have treatment. We know if we intervene in a timely fashion, we can save that person's life and then decrease the long-term disability from that heart attack. Well, if we think about addiction as a city, what we find is that it looks like this. It is a sheep farm. We have, you know, a few centers that bring a whole bunch of people together. They cuddle in together in a safe environment with a fence around them, and they, there's no, no drugs and no outside influences and no uh, maladaptive environment, and they feel safe, and we give them 29, 28 to 30 days worth of treatment, and then we let them out of the pen, and then all of a sudden they're in the big wide world where the rest of that system of treatment doesn't exist. And they, some will huddle together for safety amongst themselves. Um, some will wander off and get lost in the woods. Some will get eaten by the wolf. But sooner or later, every single one of them is going to get cheered. And, and that is what happens in the disease, uh, the treatment world of addiction, in that people are giving up their life savings for treatment that doesn't have a scientific basis for a, a certain portion of the population. And payers are paying for things that don't have evidence behind it. It's all disconnected. You don't have a choice of where you can go and how you can do it. It is, we have one thing that we can give you, and that's what you're going to get. And it's the equivalent of if I had a patient who came to my emergency department who was a 22-year-old having a panic attack, and I gave him a heart cath. Or even worse, a patient who came to my emergency department with that, with that big heart attack, and I gave them a benzodiazepine for their panic. It, you know, it, it just, it, it doesn't work. You have to right-size the system so that we know that we can deliver the right amount of care for patients. And, and we have to build that system out in pieces. And what this system looks like in kind of a, a graphical standpoint is on this next slide. And, and it really helps us to understand if we're going to treat addiction, the syndrome of addiction, then we need all of these aspects of treatment to happen in order for us to create the ecosystem that has the capacity to not only treat the sickest, but prevent those that are not as sick from getting worse and everybody in between. And if we look at this and we start with outpatient treatment, uh, you see that number one underneath it. Well, that one and that two and that three and that four as we go around, what those numbers represent are levels of care that are defined by a national criteria. So the ACM criteria has been around since the early 90s. In fact, they started it uh, back in 87, and it's gone through iteration after iteration after iteration. And what this does is it matches the patient's level of sickness with the right level of care, and it takes into account the number of the other things. But if I walk into an emergency department, even if we did the perfect screen and we did this ASAM criteria screening and we said they meet for a level 3.2, and that means that they need um, a medically supervised residential treatment, then we don't have that. <laughs> and, and so what they're going to get is what's available. And maybe the only thing available is a detox unit that's a level 4. And so we're going to send them there, and that's too much care. But then what happens is instead of stepping down from that level four to a three to a two to a one, they may go directly from that level four and then have to go find a level one treatment. So we don't have this normal continuum that really exists in every other aspect of healthcare. care. Um, if I'm in a general hospital, 
then a patient gets very sick. They get intubated in the emergency department. They get stabilized with medication. They get put into the intensive care unit. And as they get better, they go to a step-down unit. Then they go to a med, med surge telefloor. Then they get discharged to an outpatient rehabilitation center. And then they get sent back to their primary care doctor with support from a specialist. And that's standard whether or not they came in for a problem with their diabetes, a problem with their COPD, or a problem with their heart. This, this ecosystem just exists, and we assume that it's going to occur. But none of this exists in any consistent capacity, not to mention uh, less than 10% of primary care even screens for the disease of addiction. Less than 10% of OBGYN even screens for the treatment of addiction. Inpatient hospital systems are still struggling with what to do with postoperative pain, let alone the active treatment of addiction for a patient who comes in with another medical conundrum. So we have to start building this out but thinking about what is the full array of services that need to be delivered to a patient and not just what, what little intervention I can build. It's not just can I have a pathway or an order set that allows for medicine to be given in the ER. I mean, that's great. But then what do we do? Then they have to get discharged somewhere. And if they're walking back out where the wolves are, that's not real helpful if we haven't really set them up for survival. So as we start to build this out, the hospitals are going to have to own a portion of this. And um, it, that means integrated care capacity at some level. And whether that's within the existing space of outpatient treatment or a new space that gets built within inpatient, we have to figure that out. At Spectrum Health in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I had worked for uh, about a decade, we built a Center for Integrative Medicine. And uh, inside of those walls, we saw patients who were either pregnant on a controlled substance or a group of people who had been to the ER 10 or more times per year. And what we did is they would come in and be seen in that capacity and have an integrated team of a therapist, a case manager, community health workers working hand-in-hand -hand with the payers to stabilize those patients from the outpatient side, but we still lack the capability to get them to that level two and level three care. So even the best of intentions and the best of programs doesn't make up for a complete lack of this ecosystem. And so whether or not you call it a clinic or it's an inpatient team or it's an inpatient rehabilitation center, it is an integrated care of some version. But as we look at this, the biggest thing that I want to make sure you take away is that Building one program is great, but if you don't connect to all of the other levels of care around that program, it's always going to fall short. On the, on the next slide, I want to kind of walk through these basic components. So addiction is a major driver of complexity. If you, if you run a level one trauma center, greater than 60% of the people who show up for a trauma have a substance use disorder. If you run an outpatient treatment center or FQA, a federally qualified health center, and you have patients that come from the criminal justice system, up to 80% of those patients will have a substance use disorder. Yet we're, we're not handling even a small portion of those. And it is a driver of every other endpoint that we track. So if you're, if you're being held to account for readmissions or you're being held to account for um, you know, stabilization of some other disease, then what we have to do is start to figure out what is the way that I can get a patient's blood glucose stable? What is the way that I can get a patient's respiratory status stable so they don't get admitted? 
Well, you have to treat the cause and not the effect. And when we look at the, uh, you know, the infrastructure that we need, we are not even at the basic level where you can say, all right, I need an outpatient treatment center. Oh, okay, maybe I need an intensive outpatient treatment. Those are things that just don't exist in most cities, especially in the rural area. So we know what to do. We have data that is very clear in its capacity to deliver information. And that capacity means if we have a patient with an opioid use disorder and we start them on a medication like buprenorphine or methadone, we have a 70% chance of keeping them at treatment at one year. And that's not one study. For methadone, it's a 1,000 studies. For buprenorphine, it's 120 studies. For naltrexone, it's about 15 or 20 studies. So we have a lot of studies that are Cochrane level that we can do that. Um, and then what we have to now do is flip the switch and understand that we have to implement the things that we know with the science that is there and just build this out as a solid line of service in healthcare institutions as well as communities of care so that we're not having to build it in a silo again, connecting it with care coordination, care coordination programs, connecting it with community health worker uh, programs, connecting it with things that already exist and building that ecosystem so that patients have the capacity to be stable and really get into what we see as the holy grail, which is long-term remission and recovery. Wow. Thank you, Corey. And uh, I know <laughs> your remarks represent years of work uh, and uh, your own research and uh, activity in the medical system and working uh, with patients and I'm sure many others as well. I want to remind, so thank you for all of that. Uh, we acknowledge this is a complex uh, problem, but that's why we're talking about complex care and uh, kind of that there are, the playbook is trying to show people pathways here. And I do want to emphasize, uh, Corey, maybe we'll get into this more in the Q&A, but in your essay, No More Excuses, It's Time to Treat Opioid Addiction, uh, and in the visual of the play, uh, that was at the end of Catherine's slides. I mean, you are starting to kind of break it down for people. What might be some first steps one could take if you're a hospital or you're in primary care? So uh, I'm going to hold that for just a moment, but hope that we um, can get back to that. So um, I... I do want to get to chat, and I want to also just give Catherine an opportunity if there was anything that you heard in Corey's remarks uh, that you might want to just make mention of, and then we'll, we'll start getting into the discussion. Sure. No, thanks. And thanks so much, Corey. Um, that, was, that was really fascinating to hear your perspective. I think it just... Um, underscores the the point I was making earlier about how the the challenge here is around the way that the the current system is organized and I think that with um, addiction treatment it's especially complicated because we're talking about bringing something back into the system that was kind of intentionally pulled out years ago so it's a challenge but um, with folks like Corey we're um, we have uh, an idea for what the way forward might look like okay very very good. Um, all right. Well, we have a bunch of uh, questions, or we're starting. And again, a reminder to everyone to chat in your questions to all participants, uh, as opposed to all attendees. And that way, uh, we'll see your questions right away. Um, 
somebody, <laughs> all right, let's, we're going to get right into barriers. Let's assume a successful ecosystem is created. However, if the person is unwilling to attend, then what? And I don't know if we're talking about a patient there, uh, somebody with addiction, uh, so that I don't know why that's how that's striking me. Um, but um, is, is that a, a fair, a, a common experience? Uh, somebody may be expressing some frustration, uh, perhaps that uh, maybe no matter how good a program you design, uh, people, um, you know, may, may not, uh, or at least may not right away be willing to come. Why don't we just address that in whatever way you'd like to, Corey? Sure. No, this is, uh, uh, and I, this is a, this is a really good question. Um, and I think an area where a lot of people get stuck, especially early when they, when they create a system that they're wanting to help, they're doing their best to build the system of care. And then they're like, well, they don't stay in treatment. And I will say, either do people with diabetes or hypertension or hypercholesterolemia. There's a portion of the population, uh, that doesn't just capitulate. And so that's okay. There are plenty of people, less than 15% of people with the disease of addiction have access to care. So there's an 85% of the population of people with addiction who can't even get it if they want it, let alone uh, that portion of the people who are in that very early phase of experimentation and developing of a disease on the prevention and harm reduction side. So, yes, there will be people that when, even if you build the perfect system, uh, the disease of addiction changes the scope of how you use your frontal lobe. And so they don't make a decision to get help or not to get help by putting a pros and cons sheet on the refrigerator and going through it. I mean, there is significant neurobiological dysfunction and actual structural change that has happened. And many times uh, it, it requires family or friends or a really caring provider to continue to move them through what we call the stages of change. And the stages of change start with, you know, basically being pre-contemplative, meaning they have no inkling of desire to get help at this point. And then moving them into contemplative. Once they're in contemplative, we can start to move that patient. But what we have to realize is we've made the barriers so difficult for them that it is vastly easier to get access to the drug of choice than it is to get care for the treatment of addiction. And so until we've done a good job of removing the barriers and making the treatment for the disease of addiction easier than obtaining the drug, or at least as easy, then we can get frustrated, but blaming a patient for not, quote, wanting to get well, um, that starts to wear thin over time when we realize that we haven't necessarily built systems of them to access and want to continue to access because a lot of our systems are designed to be punitive rather than you know, collaborative, interactive, and positive. Thank you. I'm going to get to the question about care coordination uh, and some of the issues about staffing and training and sort of models, but I think this next question maybe just uh, flows nicely from what you were just talking about, because maybe that can get you, Corey, into talking a little bit about sort of um, first steps, particularly if you don't feel you're starting with very much. What suggestions, uh, this person is asking, for a rural healthcare system without a detox center and limited outpatient behavioral health treatment options? 
Uh, so I, I think people are kind of looking around and they're not sort of seeing even exactly what they can build upon. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a great question because uh, 60% of the country is a treatment desert, um, you know, for addiction. So this is uh, this happens in the state that I'm moving back to. I'm moving back to uh, to Michigan here in the next uh, couple of months. And I'm very familiar with Michigan. And uh, earlier before the call, we were talking about the, the Upper Peninsula. I mean, there's nothing um, up there if somebody has addiction, and there are plenty of people with addiction, and it's not unlike that in most of rural America. I've spent time in Iowa, Indiana, Ohio, Nebraska, you know, Illinois, all of these places, and and I would say more common than not, that is the situation. And so here is where our the new paradigm of telemedicine becomes really, really important. So. What I always ask a primary care uh, physician or nurse practitioner PA to do is recognize that they can at least, at the very least, treat the patients that they already have on their panel. Not look to build a big system, not look to build a detox center. You can't save the the whole world um, in that one instance. What you can do, however, is take it upon yourself to go and take the eight-hour course to get an X waiver so you can uh, write for buprenorphine, and this is a DEA-required uh, class and a certification to be able to write for buprenorphine, which is one of the most commonly prescribed uh, medications for opioid use disorder, and and treat that in-house. And if you have problems with behavioral health, then at that point, you can bring in just with a tablet or a phone even and start to uh, add in the telemetric behavioral health because those are now becoming pretty ubiquitous in availability and universally paid for. And uh, I'm having, I don't find many people who aren't paying for that now because they realize the workforce uh, development piece is a big issue. Can you say just a the little thing, bit more about what yeah. you said at the telemetric behavioral health? Many, may, perhaps many people uh, tuned in uh, from the healthcare world know exactly what you're saying, but I'll be among those uh, with the courage to say I have no idea what you're referring to. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. So, so basically, uh, telemedicine, I'm using yeah. air quotes on a radio show, which yeah, doesn't yeah. tend to work. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but if you connect, basically, it's FaceTime um, on the computer. Ah, and okay. you, and what do you do is you connect with uh, one of the companies. There are, there are companies and then there are also individuals. And depending on where you are um, and which state around the country, if you just type in um, telebehavioral health into Google search in your zip code, you'll find companies that will deliver that and they build their own stuff. So you don't have to set this up and you don't have to build all of it or build a structure. You just have to get an iPad and you can even have the patient come to your office and get that, um, that therapy there in your office while you're seeing them for their other appointment. And then the other group will handle the billing. And then there are also some software, and this is probably an entire other uh, show, but uh, there's some pretty amazing uh, new software and app packages uh, that really have gone above and beyond, uh, one of those being Dynamicare, which is, uh, again, I have no disclosures. I don't get any money from any of these things, um, but uh, which does contingency management, and it's all on their phone. So there's a lot of stuff that can be done, even if you are in, feel like you're alone, you're not, but you're going to have to engage technology. Um, and specifically, telehealth is something that is not just prescriber talking to patient, but they're now starting to pay for mentoring, basically. Uh, so you can run four or five patients with an expert on the phone. 
and um, and get that person, those people taken care of. Thanks. Um, hope that uh, at least starts to point to some ideas here. And um, somebody is asking, as the system is being designed, what are the operational measures that can help determine gaps in the current state of care? Um, you know, where would you start? And I was thinking, uh, Corey, that in your essay, uh, you have a, a couple of bulleted points, you know, for for hospitals, for example, doing some kind of an environmental scan of available treatment options. Maybe perhaps uh, we could start there. Yeah, no, thank you for that. So this is a good question. And many times the hardest part is just taking that first step. And the first step is doing an environmental scan. And you don't have to come up with some new magic way to do this. We already have the health needs assessments that are required. And just task that health needs assessment group to actually add on an assessment of capacity for addiction treatment in the community and the surrounding area. So that's what hospitals should be able to do pretty quickly. And I think the next health assessments are coming are due here pretty soon. So it may not be on this this one, but adding that as a very specific component to the health needs assessment is one quick way. I did a um, kind of a process improvement event with the county, Orange County, New York. And in two weeks, we were able to identify Everybody who touched a patient with addiction from schools to criminal justice to jails to hospitals to treatment providers and uh, and then actually value stream map out exactly what they do when they see these patients and together build a future state map. So you can do this at the county level pretty easily um, in, a, in larger cities. You can do it at the larger city uh, and referral base pathway where you bring everybody in a room and you just gather this information and it's not that big of an effort and it's not terribly expensive to be able to do that in the short term. So there are ways to do it, but the needs assessment and evaluating what is available in your environment is important. And it may be as easy as just using, you know, Google and then calling your uh, county mental health and say, who do you have contracts with to deliver services for addiction and what levels of care do they provide? And many times you can get a rough back of the napkin sketch pretty quickly for what is available and what's not. Okay. All right. Um, we are, but we're both getting a lot of really helpful, solid information. And also, I want to encourage everyone to follow up with some of the other resources that we pointed to uh, in the playbook. Uh, one of the questions, Corey, which is why I put that slide back up here of the syndrome of addiction. Somebody was wondering, are these all, you know, sh are these all the areas you should be scanning for? Uh, such that if you're missing some, uh, that's kind of a way to assess your gaps. Uh, the only one missing on here is criminal justice. So that would be the only addition I would add. And you should find out what aspects of care are being delivered both inside the criminal justice system as well as uh, in probation and uh, in the adolescent care. Other than that, then this covers pretty much all of the areas that you would want to look. So, uh, the ACM criteria, literally, you can just buy the, there's a book that says it, um, but any hospital has somebody in that facility, um, a master's level social worker, um, an RN case manager, an addiction specialist that knows exactly what this is. So they don't have to reinvent the wheel. And, and then you can scan for how many level ones do I have? How many level twos, threes, and fours? And if I don't have it here, where's the closest one? And then um, when you start looking at screening and referral, that's an 
internally, inter, you know, an internally facing scan. What screening tools are we using? What are we actually screening for? What do we do if the screen is positive? What capacity do we have to take on the work once it's positive? And, and the referral, you can't start that screening and referral until you at least know where you're going to send them. And that's why the survey of those levels of care is important. Data collection and evaluation is also critically important. And we just took one huge step forward in this because yesterday, HR 5971 uh, passed, uh, which basically takes 42 CFR Part 2, which is the Code of Federal Regulation that governs the use of addiction-related protected health information. So they've taken that, and that bill rolls it into uh, HIPAA so that it can be utilized uh, really no differently, with a couple of exceptions, than information that we would look if we wanted to see how many patients had heart disease. So that passed the House. Uh, that plus a large package of bills is going to have to go to the Senate and then get signed. But um, all signs are that by the uh, end of this fall, we should have basically a new law governing protected health information around addiction that allows for health systems to be able to gather it and track it well. Uh, this is where another a large group of people figure out social determinants and prevention. This is an area... Uh, that I just see as another frame of treatment and figuring out food safety, housing, um, chronic poverty, which is ultimately chronic trauma. Uh, we find that the brain changes over time and makes people more susceptible to ongoing addiction and other mental illnesses just from chronic poverty. And then clinic structure, um, that's into the weeds. Is it an integrated outpatient clinic with certain numbers of people, or is it an inpatient roving team that sees patients on the floor? Um, is it uh, people that basically build out order sets? The, the clinic structure is important. And then very important are payment models. And this is a point I, I do want to take a second to mention. Uh, I, I have a lot of conversations with uh, CFOs and, and hospitals, and the big worry is, is fine, let's say we want to build this. Let's say emotionally we want to. It's the, quote, right thing to do, and we want to do this, but, you know, we have a board of directors, and we have to pay for this. It's not all unicorns and rainbows, and, and I get that, and the really interesting part is, is that this is paid for. This is a line of service that even with the skeletonized version of it, the vast majority of services that need to be delivered in, in the walls of a hospital or in the outpatient space do have corresponding fee-for-service codes that can be put together. And this becomes more of a lean processing of how you bill than can you bill. So there are definitely ways that this is a sustainable and paid-for pathway, even if it's mostly Medicaid. You can still get a 1% to 3% margin out of this if you set it up correctly, even if it's almost all Medicaid. So, so this is an important aspect for people to get. And then we just got to get people on the same same page as far as data science and math. And that's going to take a little while since none of us got this training in medical school or residency. And, uh, and so we're going to have to get everybody up to snuff to know that what we're doing is, you know, the best medicine at the, at the current state in the current time. Okay. Wow. We're really <laughs> pumping you for a lot of information. I wanted to, um, um, there was one question in here that um, I know we're familiar with here at IHI, and I know uh, you are as well. Uh, I thought Catherine might uh, speak to it. The ECHO model to support um, integrated addiction medicine care, and maybe Catherine can quickly explain what ECHO offers. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and thanks so much for that question. It's great. And I think that project that at the 
the ECHO model does offer a really promising approach for addressing um, addiction treatment in rural settings. In fact, there is a case study that that is available on the playbook, but that kind of highlights um, Project ECHO's complex care initiative, which is done um, – Basically, the way that it worked is there was an interdisciplinary care team that would provide kind of the physical treatment um, to to patients and support their – provide the hands-on support, managing physical health problems, and also helping with some of the connections to housing and other social supports. However, in this rural setting, those practitioners, you know, may not have been experts in addiction medicine, but they had access to – um, uh, to coaching via video conference with um, experts in addiction and psychiatry and other relevant fields that they were able to draw upon. Um, the case study did show some some really promising results around kind of reduction in the number of hospitalizations and emergency department visits and also some reduced cost data as well. So I think that that's something that would be really interesting to try to replicate. Okay, thanks. Uh, Vicki can uh, get a uh, link in here also to Project Echo uh, out of New Mexico um, and right? Yes. Yeah, right. yes, New Mexico. Yes, I should have said that this was out of New yeah. Mexico. No, that's fine. I mean, there they began sort of uh, the whole project began around hepatitis and really trying to distribute much more treatment and guidance and support to practitioners around the country who might be far and away from mm-hmm. academic medical centers and some of the more specialized treatments. So it's been a really interesting distributed network yes. of, of the skills needed to provide a treatment, uh, something I think very Various people in the chat have been asking about sort of uh, things that might augment uh, the resources that they have, either in terms of therapy or education. And anyway, it's worth always worth looking at the ECHO model. Corey, I want you to talk about, um, you know, there's a lot of practical stuff here. Um, I think when we listen to you um, so much seems doable, and yet there can be a lot of resistance in uh, healthcare. Uh, somebody has asked about the way in which the particular stigma around addiction uh, and in our healthcare system acts as some sort of a barrier. How would you assess that right now? Um, are, are, you, are you seeing more openings, uh, perhaps, than before? Well, I, I think that to start, I mean, I think stigma is an underestimation of how uh, it really is playing out. I, I would actually label it as discrimination uh, pretty overtly, unfortunately, because stigma is when you identify, label somebody with kind of a stereotypical uh, thought process, but they still kind of get what is coming. They still get what's owed to them and they still get to do it. You just don't like doing it. Uh, discrimination is when you label somebody uh, based on um, a stereotypical understanding of something, in this case, the quote addict, and uh, and then they actually don't get the things uh, that should be delivered to them. We, we've now really reached the level where this is pretty unethical within the healthcare system to have a patient who comes into the emergency department, status post-overdose reversal, many of these people are in their early 20s and late 20s, um, and basically give them a piece of paper with phone numbers on it and kick them out without giving them options of any one of the FDA-approved first-line therapies, uh, without thinking about what we're going to do if that person goes out and dies in the next 30 days. And it's worth noting that the mortality rate for that person is higher than a missed 
non-ST elevation heart attack, meaning not the big one, but somebody came in and they had a positive lab for an injury to their heart and we missed it. I know that if I had missed this chemical called a troponin, I would have 15 people calling me the next day and they would send out like a search party for this patient to get them back into the hospital uh, to get treatment. But for addiction, that's just not the case. And what, what it is is they get a, a sheet of numbers and we call it good. And somehow we've been able to moralize this internally as a, well, they did this to themselves. So I still see stigma slash discrimination as a massive barrier but it's now reaching a level where it is a, a huge risk to a hospital system to turn a blind eye to this when we have the number one cause of injury-related mortality in the country is overdose, and the number one cause of death for people under 50 is overdose. I mean, this is uh, insane, and to not have a strategy or a capacity or a capability to identify and treat people even at the worst level of the disease, which is status post-overdose, then um, I, that's really, I think, legally tenuous, uh, to be honest. And, and so discrimination has gotten us into a point where every quality officer in every hospital should be kind of scared for when it's going to be their turn to have to pay the piper on this. And we've already seen a lot of these lawsuits come forward. And, and unfortunately, stigma has been the biggest barrier for people just to sit down and be like, you know what? Fine. We, we just have to treat this. Whether we like it or not, we need to identify who's going to be doing the point on this. Who are we going to get trained? What are the pathways? What are the order sets that we're going to put in? What are the options of admission? What are the referral pathways? And sitting down and just doing this work. We've done it for cancer, cardiology, endocrinology, um, all renal failure. All of these pathways are understood, but we have to now do it for addiction because the stigma has, has really put the healthcare institutions in a, in a really precarious and risky position. Okay. Totally appreciate uh, your thoughts here. Uh, it's a challenge, I think, uh, kind of uh, <laughs> to the audience here, many of whom do seem to want to also uh, are already picking up this baton and maybe have uh more that they can work with now thanks to this program today. A reminder, somebody did ask where can they find it again? And yes, it's being recorded and will be posted to IHI.org uh, and on iTunes and absolutely you'll find it by uh, tomorrow morning. Um, I want to also acknowledge uh, somebody uh, has Adam here has, uh, wants to remind everybody of the role of the outpatient pharmacist and uh, the interactions with patients and often being at a loss about where to refer people to. And uh, there's certainly uh, perhaps a way for the pharmacists, uh, many of whom have relationships uh, with, with people, uh, you know, at the level of uh, getting medications, et cetera, um, want to be part of the ecosystem as well. Um, I also just want to ask you, uh, we're, we're going to be sort of winding up here, but this whole aspect of the neurobiological aspect of addiction, um, this seems to, uh, I, I, one is one, I'm wondering, I guess, whether or not that is making more of an impression uh, on the entire medical community. Uh, or is that something that can be built upon and can sort of strengthen arguments? Corey, what do you think? Yeah, no, this is really important. And I spent really the last, gosh, 
five years trying to teach that. Um, and I've distilled it down to about a, about a 17 minute, basically Ted talk on this, um, which Catherine, I'll, I'll give you guys the raw video that's open source that we put together with Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, that you guys can drop on your website okay. uh, for kind of the addiction neuroscience 101. Um, but it's uh, it, mm -hmm. the key component is we can identify the parts of the brain uh, that are malfunctioning. We can identify when they get better and what it takes to get them better. We know that if a patient comes in and starts treatment for uh, opioid use disorder, that their brain, most patients' brains will start to heal around 18 months to 24 months, but not until then. So to expect somehow that a patient gets better um, is like somebody breaking their arm, upsetting it and calling it good without putting a cast on it. I mean, it requires time and the understanding that the minimum amount of time that seems to be required is a couple of years of really aggressive approach to, to treatment. And then after that, we can start to determine if we can lighten it up. But, uh, you know, when we, when we look at how we set these systems up, I mean, that's going to be uh, the biggest fundamental piece is understanding uh, even once you set it up, it's going to take time, it's going to take energy, and it's going to take emotional capital uh, to build these things and move through it. Okay. Well, I want to uh, extend a huge thank you to you, Dr. Corey Waller, for being part of WIHI today and for being so engaged with Catherine and the team around the playbook where people can find more things. Thank you very much for your generosity uh, around uh, the talk uh, re with respect to the biological, uh, physiological aspects of addiction. I'm sure people will be uh, thrilled to be able to tap into that as well. So we'll uh, let everyone know uh, when that's available um, uh, for viewing. Uh, Catherine, I want to thank Thank you as well, Catherine Mather, uh, working in these areas of complex care and for all your help in uh, putting this together. So, uh, and audience, don't forget, you can download the chat uh, when you get off the show today. A lot of interesting comments from your colleagues uh, far and wide. And uh, please uh, do share this program with others uh, who didn't make it to the live one. Next up on WIHI on July 12th, we were actually hadn't planned it this way, but it's fairly uh, continuous, how to build better behavioral health in the emergency department. And this is uh, work uh, that being supported by the Wellbeing Trust that's really trying to uh, kind of give the emergency department, emergency department staff more tools uh, to do far more for people coming into the ED with behavioral health crises. I think it, it fits very much with the thing that Corey was talking about uh, as far as uh, really kind of being part of the solution and the treatment uh, as a part as opposed to being a referral um, or referring people elsewhere. Uh, check out the archive pages for WIHI, uh, where you'll find the audio download of this program and all kinds of other programs as well. And if you subscribe to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement on iTunes, you'll be reminded of new shows in your feed. 
If you have any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. They're a great group who helped make WIHI possible. They're John Gothier, Matt Morris, Vicki Minden, Joanna Carmona, and Val Weber. I want to give a special thanks to Stephanie Gary Garfunkel for all her help with the show. And it's my privilege to host this program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care, most of all. Very, very um, humbled and inspired uh, that we're putting the uh, spotlight on addiction today. For the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.